You may be seated. And if you'd like, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians, specifically chapter 2. Yeah, we got a one-week break, uh, or one-week pause from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, here with the side series we've been going through, slowly through the book of Philippians. Um, if you can remember back what we said about Philippians so far, we sort of said that Philippians is a short letter, but a magnificent letter. It's sort of gospel basics, gospel bread and butter that Paul writes to us. And so because of that, every sermon we've looked at so far, and everyone uh, that will will come next, we'll say the gospel does something. Okay, so we looked at uh, three, three sections of Philippians 1 so far, and we said the gospel guarantees glory. We said the gospel defeats pride, and we said the gospel gives confidence. Okay, now here this morning we come to the very beginning of chapter 2. One of the best, most exalted passages in all of Scripture, and I know that seems like, you, like a preacher says that every single week, but... but you have to mean it here. You have to mean it here. It's wonderful. Um, what you're about to hear, the following will not do it justice. Okay, I, I don't think you can do this passage justice. Um, but we're going to try. We're going to give it our best this morning. So here, now the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, what a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture before us this morning. As it is so rich, would you help us to mine its steps, at least to some measure, here this morning. Give us its riches. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On October 1st, 2009, General Stanley McChrystal, then was commander of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan, he stood before a crowded room of reporters in London to address the recent insurgency in Afghanistan. Okay, McChrystal, if you don't know him, he's already one of the most decorated leaders in U.S. military history up to this point, and amongst his peers, he was known as the highest of high achievers. As a man, he was a graduate of Harvard. Uh, he, he ran six miles, committed to run six miles every single day. He had all his military duties, obviously commander of the U.S. forces there. He ate only one full meal a day to save time and slept only four hours a night. 
Okay, so this general, okay, this military hero, this high achiever personality, as he stood before that crowded room that day, what might you expect him to say regarding his approach in Afghanistan? You might expect him to say something like this. He said, with relentless pursuit, with unmatched diligence, with a strong hand, we'll squash the rebels. Might be what you expect. As he stood before the room that day, he he gave an unexpected answer about his his approach. With the following words, he said, I have found in my experience that the best answers and approaches may be counterintuitive. The opposite of what it seems you ought to do is what ought to be done. So when I'm asked the question, what approach should we take in Afghanistan? I say, humility. Humility. Now listen, I'm I'm not a military expert by any means. You probably, that's not a surprise. probably to you. I have no idea what humble counterinsurgency looks like. Not a clue, okay? It could be a terrible military strategy. I don't know. I don't even know how this all turns out, okay? But his remarks that day touch on something central to the Christian story, though it goes against all our most basic intuitions. Humility is the pathway to success. Humility is the pathway to success. Our intuition, it would say what? When you're thinking about life, you're thinking about success in life, it would say, no, be forceful. Be uncompromising. Chase your dreams at all costs. Never show people your weaknesses. Speak often of your friends in high places. Don't speak of your friends in low places. Fake how happy you are. Fake how put together you are. Play up your wealth when it comes up. Tear down others when they come up. Always speak like you know better, even if you don't. For all of human history, those have been our well-trodden paths. We've tried them again and again and again. You've tried them. Okay? We've all tried them. You won't find success there. Maybe you've already realized that. If you haven't, I hope you, I hope you will this morning. Our most basic intuition when it comes to what is admirable in life, it's wrong. Wrong. The counterintuitive answer. That's the right one. To be successful in life, you must be humble. You say, but you know, how in the world can you just get humility? How do you just get it? You know, it, it doesn't grow in trees, obviously. You know, if you go to a self-help section in, in, a, in a library, okay, there's not really books about humility. How can you find it? Well, here's the thing with humility that's different than the vast majority of the other virtues. Other virtues, if you think about some of them, courage, temperance, justice, you know, you can find these in some measure by just great study, care, diligence, uh, discipline, not humility, no. The only way in the world you can find humility is in the gospel. In the gospel. In fact, there's an Australian historian named John Dixon. He wrote a book, History of of Humility. And he argues that Jesus 
is really the first person in history to introduce and, and establish his humility as aspirational for us. Something we should desire to have. It says, how, how did Jesus do this? Sort of surprisingly, Dixon says, it's not so much his teaching that did it, okay, though Jesus taught about it. It wasn't, it wasn't so much his persona that, that, that did it. What was it? Maybe you can guess. It was, it was his death. The crucifixion of Jesus took the whole idea about what is great and successful and honorable in life, and it flipped it. It, it turned it on its head. You know, the, the weak are really strong. That's what the cru- crucifixion tells us. The strong are really weak. The humble, really admirable. The pompous, really fools. And when you know it, but it's almost like Dixon, John Dixon read Philippians 2. Because that's exactly what Paul tells us here. The Son of God, the second person of this exalted, glorious trinity, what did he do? He humbled himself. And he humbled himself for you. So what does that tell you? What it should tell you is that if there is anything at all that the gospel should produce in you, if you believe it, it should produce in you humility. No no longer is life about your glory and your honor. It's not about gaining applause. It's not about bettering others, asserting yourself in what you want. Couldn't Jesus have done all that? He, He certainly could have. He didn't. He became nothing for you. So what I want to do this morning is just in two parts. First, I want to take some time. Let's sort of define humility. Okay, this concept is that we that we think about what is it exactly. And then secondly, let's take that idea that I just mentioned about about the gospel. Okay, the gospel as it's properly understood, how it should make you humble. Okay, so first let's talk about a definition. What is humility? Okay, to do this, I want to go back to John Dixon. Here's his definition about a paragraph long. He says, humility does not mean humiliation. Nor does it mean being a doormat for others, having low self-esteem or curbing your strengths and achievements. Having strong opinions is also no hindrance to humility. One of the failings of contemporary Western culture is to confuse conviction with arrogance. So what is humility if it isn't surrendering our convictions, our strengths and achievements? And this this is where he narrows down to it. Humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, he says, you could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service to others. That's good, I think. I think that's really good. Humility is the willingness to hold power in service to others. Again, it's like Dixon read Paul, and it's because, in fact, he did, as a good historian would do. That, that's Paul's definition, too, for us in verses 3 and 4, isn't it? What does he say there? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What should you do instead? You, just, you should consider others more significant than yourself. 
You should look after the interests of others and not only your interests only. Okay, and we, we can even break down Paul's definition there a little bit further. What does it mean to do things out of selfish ambition or conceit? Well, what this means is that you seek glory and importance for yourself regardless of how it affects others. Right? Others, they're in the way. They're in the way if they're not outright enemies to you getting what you want. You know, this, it's, it's a me-first mentality, isn't it? I'll consider myself and all the things I need, the thing, my, what I'm interested in, and if, okay, if there's some leftovers, maybe. Maybe I'll consider you. Maybe. You know, the logic of that actually makes sense to us, doesn't it? Again, that's our natural disposition. If we are anything, we are conceited. You have to admit that about yourself. If we are anything, we are conceited. We do not have to try to be conceited. None of us in this room have to try. We've got it down pat. We've figured it out to this point. Okay? But what we have to do, what takes tremendous, supernatural, Holy Spirit-produced effort is to do the opposite. To go from a me-first mentality to what? To a you-first mentality. Right? To count others more. Do you, you see, see what Paul said? He didn't say count others equal. Not, don't count others equal. Count others more significant than yourself. Again, what Paul means by this phrase, it's, it's not just some nice sentiment that we can just hold in our hearts about others. It, it's not just sort of you know, pity for all those sweethearts out there that just can't figure it out. It's not what he means. To count others more significant than yourself means that you consider others, their lives, however insignificant they are, their needs, however small they are, their concerns, however silly they are, as more valuable, more worth attention than your own. For some of us, that's especially hard to hear, I think. Some of us in this room live very consequential lives. You've built them by a lot of hard work, okay, a lot of self-denial, a lot of school probably. Now, some of us in this room have, hey, have tremendously large needs. We feel overwhelmed, we feel swamped. You know, some of us in this room have really big concerns, and they, they, they overwhelm us, they weigh us down. But what you need to hear this morning is that the life of the person next to you, the life of the people around you, that person's life is more consequential than yours. Their needs are bigger than yours. Their concerns more important than yours. I don't know, that's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. But I think that's what Paul's telling us to do. Now I know also what's, what's popping up in your head, at least uh, for some of you right now, say, well, okay, I, fine, I can sort of follow you there, but if I, but if I don't care for myself, I'm not going to be able to care for others, am I? And just, uh, listen, I don't think Paul, I don't think the Bible rules out a level of, of self-care that just sort of common sense what you, what you have to do. 
But my guess is that most of us, if any of us, that we don't struggle with a lack of self-care. Yes, probably a lot of us in this room might struggle with a lack of self-esteem. Okay, but, but that's different from a lack of self-care. And, and let me prove it to you in this way. Virtually every time you have a need or concern, what do you do? Virtually every time. You attend to it, don't you? You, you attend to it fairly rapidly, I would guess. All right, your stomach rumbles, what do you do? You eat. Okay, you get hurt, you get a cut, what do you do? You find a Band-Aid, you put it on there. You, you need a break, what do you do? You, you plan to go on a vacation. You need some guidance, what do you do? Maybe you ask for help, you look it up on your phone. Okay, we're good at that. We're good at that. What Paul is saying is that same level of attention we give to our own needs and our own concerns we should give that same level of attention and more to others. It's, it's the same thing that Jesus tells us, right? In this, what's the second greatest commandment? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is saying there is not, you know, you need to love yourself first so that you can go out and love others. That, that's not what he's saying. You know, he's assuming you love yourself already just fine. Okay, he's assuming that. Okay, we've uh, mentioned this before. You might not like yourself, but you love yourself. I hope that's, uh, that's sort of clear. We're consumed with thoughts about us. All, all of us are. But it's loving others. It's thinking about their needs, their concerns, their lives. We're not good at it. We're, we're not good at it. Okay, you asked the question, okay, but how? If I, if I follow you all this way, okay, how? Obviously, Jesus, Paul, these are some great ideals you can lay out, right? You know, this sounds really great. But what, what about the practical? How in the world can you actually do this? Consider others before yourself. It seems impossible. Paul, Paul he gives us an, a, a practical application for us in the next verse. Okay, it's a broad application, verse 5, but it's, it's an application, or verse 4. Paul says that to consider others above ourselves is to do what? Is to look after the interests of others. Okay, instead of sort of expounding on that and sort of defining what exactly all does that mean, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is a perfect illustration for us. I think this can show us what it means. If you, if you know the story there, what, what do the two men do, the first two men do when they see the man lying beaten, half dead on the side of the road? Now, the first man, a priest... Second man, a Levite. Surely they had important schedules. Right, it's been conjectured the first man, the priest, maybe he, he had to be ritually clean for, for sacrifices that he was performing at the temple that day or the, in the next day. Maybe, maybe the Levite, he had some other temple-related activities he had to do. So what did they do? These busy men with important schedules. They saw the man and they ignored him. Okay? And not just ignored him, that'd be one thing. But did you notice? You notice in the story, they pass on the other side of the road. They go out of their way to avoid him. This half-dead man, he's the interruption. He's the hindrance, he's the annoyance to their lives. All right, this, this is the me-first mentality. I've got interests, 
I've got a schedule. I need to see to it. Tough luck. Tough luck. Don't, don't you see yourself in those two men? I hope you do. I think we all should. But the Samaritan, what did he do when he saw the man lying half dead? Surely he had somewhere to be. He had an important, busy schedule. He didn't say, oh, this is going to interrupt my life. This is going to, be, this is going to make my life a mess. He got down from his donkey, right? He bound his wounds, he put them up on it, carried him to the nearest inn, and paid for his care. That's humility lived out. That's practical humility right there. Okay, John Dixon, he would go on to say that there are three key presumptions regarding humility as we sort of wrap up trying to understand and define this concept. Okay, three things. He says, humility first presupposes your dignity. Okay, he says, if you don't have an inner confidence or an inner strength, you simply can't let go of your own glory. Okay, so you can't be, in other words, you can't be the good Samaritan without a sense that God loves you and he keeps you and you're confident in that. Okay, next he says, humility also presupposes your willingness. Okay, no one can be humble without choosing to be. Okay, unchosen humility, what's that called? We, well, we call that humiliation or we call it embarrassment. Okay, you can't be humble without choosing to be. And then lastly, he says, humility presupposes a social dynamic. Okay, what he means here is that you simply can't be humble by refraining from proud thoughts about yourself in your head. That's sometimes how we think about it. Why not? He says, because humility is always other-directed. So we've said it's, it's you first. So if the only way you think about humility is I just refrain from proud thoughts about myself inwardly, then ironically you're still stuck in that me-first mentality that's antithetical to true humility. Does all that make sense? I hope that's at least somewhat clear. All this talk is great. Okay, we can define humility, we can study it, we can try to understand the concept better, but we've got to get back to what I mentioned at the very beginning. No matter how much you study it, no matter how much you try to define it, you cannot be humble without the gospel. Why is that? Because the second you use humility to gain something for yourself, you've lost it. The second you use humility maybe to be more respected amongst your peers or to, to gain something career-wise or, or maybe to think of yourself as superior to all those proud people out there. Or maybe you use humility to sort of gain God's favor or gain salvation. It's over. It's over. It's the surest sign you've taken the concept Jesus has introduced to us and you've, you've, you've turned it into selfish ambition. Right. Humility as just a tool to getting what I want. Selfish ambition. And without the gospel, that's the only way you or I would ever approach humility. If we approached it at all, we might not. It would just be a me first wrapped in a you first facade, if we could say that. Right? That, that's all it would ever be. 
And that's perhaps why Paul, when he's on the subject here of humility, he can't just sort of leave it as a, you know, you should be humble. Philippians, people, you should be humble. It's a really good thing to do. Just, just go out there and, and be humble. No, he, that's, he doesn't do that. What does he do next? He exhorts us in seven of the most gospel-explaining, gospel-succinct explanatory verses in the whole Bible. Doesn't he? You know, he doesn't give us this big, long treaty about humility and, 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 and the various aspects of it. You know, sort of like I just did a second ago. No, he says, look here. Look at Jesus. That's where you're going to find humility. Okay, so how does the gospel make you humble? What's the pattern of Jesus' life laid out here by Paul? All right, this exalted, glorious second person of the Trinity. He's above all things. He's first. What did he do? Didn't consider himself first. There's that phrase in verse 6 that we read. And it's actually a little bit of a confusing uh, phrase. And that's because all translators say it's actually a difficult verse to translate. How does it read, at least in the, the ESV that I, that I read up here? It says, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, what, what does this mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that Jesus didn't think he really was divine like God. Okay, it definitely, most certainly does not mean that. A translation that, that's been proposed that I like better, I think it sounds better, fits better, says this, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to for his own advantage. You know, that resonates with what Paul's been saying, doesn't it? The Son of God did not consider his status a thing to be used for himself. So the natural question is, who did he consider it should be used for? Used for you. Considered it should be used for you. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. What did he do? How did he do that? By becoming a servant? Just by being born, by dying, even dying on a cross. Did you notice gradual declension? Okay, he goes down, down, down. If you just think about that for a moment... That the riches of heaven, Jesus traded them because you were poor. Right? The glories of heaven traded because you didn't have any. Right? The enjoyment of heaven traded because you were stuck in sin and misery. And you know in our me first minds, you know what we'd say to that naturally? At least. Maybe some of us have said this in this room. No thanks. You know, I'm good. I'll figure it out on my own. You know, I can gain some strength, glory, power for myself. I can find a way to God. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks, but no thanks. That's what we'd say to Jesus. When the gospel comes and it strikes your heart, truly strikes your heart, you realize something. 
you realize that first and foremost, you need to approach God with humility. Jesus came to save sinners. You know, he saves, he saves no one who has it all together. He doesn't save the strong. Not a single soul. If Jesus had to go down, 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 these successive acts of humility, you have to realize how lowly you are. Really, all of us. All right, the status, the resources, the power, the wealth, the moral goodness you have, you have to see it, I mean, really worthless. If it could gain you anything, Jesus would not have done this for you. He would not have endured the cross. Don't you see that? If Jesus doesn't make you humble, nothing will. For those of you who still are struggling, maybe, with the concept of humility, don't you see how Jesus answers all our objections? Who has more dignity than Jesus? Who has more power, worth, who has more strength and conviction? You see, humility is not weakness. It's not low self-esteem. It's not curbing your strengths and humility. No, humility is living life as it was meant to be. Focused on others. Those of you out there who are high achievers, tend to seek status, perhaps over others, don't you see how Jesus, he achieved more with less status than you? Humility is the answer for you. For those of you out there who tend to heap shame upon yourself over and over again, don't you see Jesus left the glories of heaven for you? He thinks you're worth it. To have the humility in order to believe that, that's the answer for you. Do you know what's implied by the last three verses that Paul writes here? Yes, they are some of the highest language in Scripture when it talks about Jesus and his glorious, his exalted state. But, but why did Paul write them specifically here? Philippians 2, why do he write them? He writes them so that you would know where humility leads. Again, our, our basic intuition about life is wrong. As this humble Savior went down, 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 God does what? He raises him up, up, up. That's the pattern here Paul lays out. And for those who humbly come to him, you get to follow him wherever he goes. First down, then it's up. You know, humility, it's, it's not lost in exaltation. No, it, it's not. In God's economy, his way of working, exaltation is just the consequence of humility. It's what, you, it's what every humble person gets, exaltation. It's the, it's the crown of a successful life. So would you come? Would you let the gospel lay you down low in humility? Maybe you, you've never let it do that before. Maybe you've never, just, you've never known or meditated on the lengths that Jesus has gone for you. 
Or maybe you've just forgotten it. It's just sort of in the back of your mind. You just sort of forgot it, forgotten it throughout the years. But would you come? And would you receive the gospel of this humble Savior? And so start to live life as it was meant to be lived. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, would you make us humble, we ask. We are desperately conceited. And we need the gospel to open our hearts both to God and to those around us. So would you give us your grace that we may have your humble mind amongst us and so live as you truly mean for us to live. Oh Jesus, would you help us? Amen. Would you now stand, receive the benediction, afterwards we will sing the doxology. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in this humble Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.